2: Good morning and good afternoon to each and every one of our merry Marvelites. Thank you so much to uh, everyone hanging out in the live chat right here on Geekscape. I am Christian Blatt. As always, uh, this is Marvel Movie Talk. He is obscuring his uh, lovely face in the box there with uh, with the creature, but of course, it is our own creature, Count Eric Connor, and we're very excited to welcome back to the show Kenny Johnson. Kenny, the last time you were on, we uh, talked about having you back uh, for uh, specifically an episode that talks about the season four two part premiere. Prometheus, and uh, you weren't able to, you know, for a couple months, you were able to come up with excuses, but eventually, you ran out of it. Like, (laughs) fine, I'll come back on. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll be, you know, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back (laughs) in.
2: Exactly, (laughs) and uh, very excited. And of course, we're joined by uh, Eric Connor, as I mentioned. Uh, Very excited to talk to you uh, about this episode. And uh, there's a a lot of things in the episode that I want to discuss. But uh, one of the things, you know, I sort of, uh, it was interviewing 101 uh, the last time we talked. I saved something I really wanted to talk about for the end. And then we kind of ran out of time. So I think it's important when you talk about this show to talk about the music. And I think that this is a perfect episode to highlight that because, Joe Harnell, who did the music for the show, is also responsible for the the end credits music, The Lonely Man, which unfortunately, yeah. because of YouTube regulations, I'm not even going to try to play. But uh, anybody that needs a reminder, you know, will play it for the uh, the audio version of this. But I thought it was interesting that there was a release. And this is from a CD there's a release specifically for the score for these two episodes. So I thought that's a great way to start talking about Prometheus by talking about the music, talking about the collaboration with Joe. But my first point about this, where does The Lonely Man come from? And the first time you hear it, what is your reaction, Kenny?
0: Well, the uh, uh, normally, and maybe we mentioned this before, in, in the days we were doing The Incredible Hulk, uh, most of the uh, episodic television shows, when they got to the closing credits, uh, they all had a sort of a, a rousing or stirring or whatever, big orchestral piece that uh, ended the show. Uh, and I said to Joe, uh, he said, what do you want for the end? And I said, what I want is it- it's, a, it's, a, it's a lonely guy. It's a solo guy and he's walking away. And so I think it should just be a solo piano, Joe, uh, which Joe loved, of course, because he's a primarily a pianist. And, um, and I said, and it needs to be a very simple... Piece that has pathos but is not pathetic, Uh, and that uh, gives us a sense of melancholy without, you know, squirming in it so that it doesn't get uh, over melodramatic. Uh, A little bit of the feeling of Eric Satie's Gymnopodie that are very, very simple pieces, but that they just are haunting uh, when you hear them. Um, And uh, Joe said, okay. And uh, was Jared, Joe was trained classically he studied with Aaron Copeland and uh, Leonard Bernstein was one of Joe's uh, classmates as a matter of fact wow. uh, and um, uh, so he well, finally after a couple of days working on it by himself he said alright come on over and we'll sit down at the piano and, and see what you think and uh, we he was he started playing it for me and it was really really exactly the tone and feeling that I was looking for um, I had uh, I had couple of moments in it I I thought maybe could be better and so I'm sitting on the piano bench beside Joe and I and I said what if it was this note instead of this note and because I'm something of a musician Joe always said I was just enough of a musician and I knew just enough about music to be dangerous this (laughs) this was one of those his prime examples and I think it was literally one note I changed in uh in the piece but it gave it uh it underlined the tonality that I was looking for even more so. Um, and that's what we went with. And uh, it became as iconic in its own right as the as the show became and, and the creature uh, of the Hulk uh, because of Joe's extraordinary talent. And, um, and I still mourn his loss. He died many years ago now. but. Uh, uh, he had done so much work for me for so long on the. I brought him originally to Hollywood to work on the, the Bionic Woman, and then he did uh, really all of the Hulk, and then we went on to do V together, which was of course an extraordinary score that he wrote uh, for V, uh, which is a whole different show we can talk about sometime. Um, because the music in v was 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 very specific <laughs> and uh, yeah i really know yeah. you,
2: you and i spoke uh, earlier this year uh for the 40th anniversary of it and the music was definitely a big part of Talk it, about yeah. it right 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 yeah. but yeah. Uh, but no
0: joe was a tremendous helpmate and a and a tremendous collaborator and allowed me the freedom to just keep meddling you know and uh until we got it right and or the way that seemed the most right to me for the project
2: yeah and what i love about this uh cd release is just how many tracks there are you know there's uh, no shortage of uh, music presented on here and uh i think it's uh it's great so uh, i just wanted to touch on that and uh, i thought it, like i said it was so fitting because of the importance of the music and the score uh in the episode so Uh, So when we spoke previously, we basically focused on the premiere uh, of, of the show and sort of getting it on the air. And what I found interesting, because I have not watched the the like two and a half seasons in between, I just jumped into season four. And I think the nature of primetime network television was some, you know, every episode was probably somebody's first. So you don't want them to be lost. But uh, what were maybe the most significant things heading into the season four premiere when, you know, it's it's clearly it's it's very big for television at the time, you know, and uh, your presentation, I think, is going to reflect that. Uh, And, you know, it definitely stood out for me watching it, you know, 45 years later or not quite 43 years later. But that uh, so just talk about sort of what happened in. On the show, but then also with the show behind the scenes in, in the few years from you know, when it premiered to getting this fourth season?
0: Sure. Um, well, very quickly, when I did the pilot uh, for The Incredible Hulk, um, uh, and we sold the series and it went onto the air, um, they released my uh, original TV movie pilot of The Incredible Hulk uh, overseas. And maybe I mentioned this to you as a foreign theatrical release. And, um, and I got a call from Universal and, and they said, congratulations, you have the top grossing movie in Europe. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And they said, your are pilot. Of the, we released it as a foreign theatrical and it's the top grossing picture in Europe. It's outgrossing all the other movies, Woody Allen and a bunch of other shows. and uh, And for like almost two months, I think it was the top grossing movie over there uh who knew you know and it ended up making at the time about uh, i don't know 18 or 20 million dollars which in 197778 was a huge amount of money overseas particularly for a uh, a tv movie that had only cost about you know less than 2 million dollars at the time to make here um and um uh, and uh, so it was it was surprising to hear and then the, the op- to open the second season of the show uh, I, was, uh, I came up with the idea of married as being the title, which means, wait a minute, Dr. Banner gets married, the Hulk gets married, and, um, uh, and it, it, it was a very emotional, strongly played show by Bill and uh, Marriott Hartley, who played our leading lady whom he falls in love with. It's a tragic love story. She is dying. He tries to help her while she's trying to help him with his problem and, uh, and, and make the Hulk go away. Uh, And Marriott won the the, uh, Emmy Award for Best Actress in a Drama Series that year, which sort of people said, wait a minute, The Hulk won the, the Drama Award? And people began to realize, yes, the show was more than just, you know, a big green guy knocking things over. And the, the, the uh, studios and the networks that are, the studio and the network had already realized that because the uh, uh, the ratings showed that we had a broad four quadrant audience where where our largest single section of audience was adult women. They were our biggest <laughs> audience and then adult men and then teens and then kids. Uh, and that's the perfect demographic for TV. They love that because the, uh, the women, of course, are the consumers that drive the, the, uh, the, the commercial aspects of, of anything. Um, and so Married was a wonderful and obvious follow-up for for to open the second season with. And uh, by the third season, as I recall, the third season, uh, and the show was really rolling along. We'd been in the top 20 since we'd initially gone on the air uh, and in the top 15 or, or lower most of the time. Um, and we had continued that way. So when we rolled into the third season, we just sort of kept going the way we had been. As I recall, the, the third season opener was uh, uh, about addiction, about drugs, and uh, Mackenzie Phillips, I believe, played the leading lady in it. And uh, and Gary Graham, who later did a uh, uh, became my star on uh, Alien Nation, Gary had a small part in which he gave. Uh, Dr. Banner LSD or something. And uh, and he reminded me of that when he came in to read for me on, uh, uh, on Alien Nation. Um, but uh, by the time we were, but they then married was so successful also that they released it as a foreign theatrical movie as well. Uh, and it also did huge amounts of money over there for them. Uh, and uh and again we had a top grossing movie <laughs> you know that that, that never had a, a kind of a budget that you would ever expect would uh, have that kind of success overseas but i think it was the emotional content that really drove it uh and that the, that uh, drew in all of the people in in england and in france and in germany and in spain and all uh and it was it was really rewarding so when we were heading to the fourth season i said well you know what let me try to give them another another problem, another movie they could release overseas, uh, you know, and um, and, I, and I had been intrigued for quite a while about the concept that um, there should likely be a, an organization within our government between sort of a NASA kind of operation as a contingencies situation. What happens if there actually is uh a ufo that lands and somebody gets out of it uh as in close encounters and and uh, and that sort of thing uh and it, it it seemed to me that there there must be some corner of our the united states government that has has got a, at least a little working plan and a little group of people that have thought about this and what to do if such a thing happened uh, and i thought that was an interesting premise to to begin with uh, and, uh, then as I began to think, okay, well, what can happen, uh, if it's, if, if the, the creature, the Hulk gets mistaken for an, uh, an, an extraterrestrial visitor, uh, and, uh, and what kind of a situation could, could that lead to? And at the same time, I was thinking, okay, well, what is coming and going to, going to hit? Well, it, I said it's got to be a meteor or something like that. But maybe if it's shaped sort of cylindrically, it'll have little echoes of, of War of the Worlds. And uh, and it may be coming at a, such an angle into uh, toward the Earth that it almost feels like it's being piloted. So this gives the folks in North American Air Defense Command, uh, which is where the movie starts, uh, something to say, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, and uh, and that's that's how the the, the film uh, that's how the film starts uh, at North American Air Defense. And uh, in, in this and in this shot is is actually a frame grab that we're seeing from uh, from the show when we hear a PA voice saying, uh, Colonel Appling to the deep space net, please. And Colonel Appling uh, walks over to the deep space net space net where uh, this young woman is working and uh, and he comes sauntering over and he says, if this is for another dinner invitation, then you're on. Your catalogue was superb last night. And she has a snappy little response of, well, I hope you like dessert as well. Yada, yada. So there was a little, little. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll
2: just uh, interject about uh, when I was watching this yesterday, I was like, oh, I love that interaction. And, uh, you know, you, you you wouldn't get it today. And I'm like, oh, but that seems uh, very authentic, yeah. you
0: know. Right. Well, it was. It was it was authentic. It was also real and it was personal and it was it was very human. And there's another thing about it, too, that I will tell you about Prometheus um, that uh, that line that he spoke just sounds like an ordinary line. Um, but uh, I had just finished writing a, uh, a miniseries uh, that was supposed to be my trade-off for having created the Incredible Hulk, which of course never got produced. <laughs> but in writing uh, Ivanhoe, which was set in the 1100s with Robin Hood and uh, uh, and King Arthur and, and uh, all the Arthurian all the legends going on. Uh, I wanted to give that uh, script a kind of a, a classical feel. So uh, I, I wasn't sure what I meant by that, except... Uh, so I went back and looked at uh, a lot of the great classic films like The Man for All Seasons and Beckett and The Lion in Winter. Uh, and, uh, and I noticed something going on in The Lion in Winter that sort of caught my ear. And I picked up the script. I got a copy of the original play and I'm reading the, uh, the, the lines that William Goldman had written. And uh, like one of the lines that uh, King Richard says is, or, or King uh, uh, Henry says, uh, uh, my life when it is written will read better than it lived. Henry Fitzimpress, first Plantagenet, the noblest soldier of a noble time. He led men well. And what's happening here is the dialogue I realized was written in meter. It was written in iambic meter. Iambic is the same meter that Shakespeare wrote in. Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. It's like a heartbeat, uh, iambic is. And so I, when I wrote this, the dialogue for Ivanhoe, I wrote it all in iambic meter. And what that means is you've got to figure out what you want to say and then how you can say it so that it is in meter but doesn't sound like you're forcing it. It just sounds natural. And um, if this is for another dinner invitation, then you're on. Your cannelloni was superb last night. That's all ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump. Because you find where the emphasis must be in each word. Like you don't say cannelloni, you say cannelloni, you know, and, it, and uh, superb, you don't say superb, you say superb. So the emphasis there. You have to figure out what syllable the, uh, the um, emphasis has to be on. So that when he's saying that, if this is not for another invitation, then you're on, your cannelloni was superb last night. You know, and then she says, I hope you like dessert as well. It's all in iambic. And uh, uh, and it was uh, just,
2: uh, I just want to interject for a second, because from the earlier conversation you and I had about V, the most fascinating thing was your revelation that you wrote that entire movie, the entire two part miniseries in iambic pentameter. Right, Kenny?
0: That's exactly right, because by then I was on a roll, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and having just finished uh, uh, doing it with, with Ivanhoe, I said, I wonder if I can do it in a contemporary uh, piece, and I said, I, you know, while I'm writing Prometheus, I think I'm just going to try that, and indeed, that's what we did, and all the dialogue in it, all the way from beginning to end, is ba-bum-ba-bum-ba-bum. Ba-bum, ba-bum. It's not broken into pentameter, into five uh, beats like Shakespeare's is, but but it, it continues, and and it gives the dialogue this remarkable flow uh, that's, uh, that audiences don't even really think about, but it's there and the actors feel it uh, uh, as well. And as a matter of fact, uh, there was one of the first days we were shooting, Bill came onto the set and, he, and he, we were doing a scene and, and he wasn't getting the words right. You know, he hadn't learned the, the dialogue exactly like I'd written it. And uh, and I explained to him what I was trying to do. And he said, oh, oh, OK, let me go back to the trailer. Let me get it really right. And from that point on, Bill was exactly spot on with his performance, as were all the other actors all the way through. So when you actually see Prometheus and, and listen to it uh, in, on DVD or Blu-ray or, or whatever, um, the um, uh, listen for it, because you'll hear it, ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. Ba-bum um so anyway just uh, getting on with prometheus here uh so they uh he's called it the deep space net because they've discovered that there's something coming and it's not uh, out of it's coming from a, a peculiar area it, it's uh, they does but it's not a spacecraft they space the soviets didn't have anything out that way and neither did we so there's an issue something's going on and something's coming and I wanted to have a big opening for the for the picture. And I remembered a sequence. Um, this is a frame grab from a movie called The Parallax View that Alan Peculia, Peculia directed. Uh, and it had been out two or three years before. And we had used some stock footage from this. In a Bionic Woman episode, uh, when uh, this dam opens up and water comes spilling out, we needed uh, water to chase Jamie for something that I'm going to get to actually. And I remembered this this sequence. It was a because it was a um, this is a closer shot, uh, and this this is a stud double doubling Warren Beatty, um, and he's been taken out to this uh, trying to solve this mystery with by this local cop who's is over here. And um, uh, and then uh, he realizes Beatty does that he's in deep trouble because he's been lured out here. This guy's about to pull a gun on him and shoot him. And what happens in this sequence is uh, they get into a struggle and they fall in the water and they're carried downstream. And so we uh, went to a Paramount and uh, bought a lot of the footage, uh, not with any Warren Beatty in it, obviously, of course, uh, that we could intercut with our uh, our own guys. Uh, here and so here's another. So here's another angle of the same thing. Now what I've done is I've I've zoomed in on it. The this original angle was a bigger shot. It was a cinema cine, cinema scope shot, so it was wider. And the cop that you saw in the khaki was standing right here can you see me doing that okay
2: yes yeah people, okay. people watching yeah, the video from so the era, yeah, yeah so
0: what we've done is we've taken the scene and we've literally blown in on the shot so the cop is no longer in, in the shot but what I have is an establishing shot that shows a guy in a blue you know a, a, a denim and, and, and this, this color of trousers standing on a rock right here and that's where Bill is in our piece. Now, I shot all of Bill's stuff at Tahunga Wash where there is no dam and uh, there's very little water, which we had to deal with. But uh, when we cut Bill in with the stock footage of uh, that we bought from Paramount, it looked like he was there. And then as he looks up that way in the movie, um, the dam opens up and the water starts coming out and he's just fishing here. And he was standing on the rock fishing and here's me and uh, one of the special effects guys with me. Uh, and this is the Tahanga Wash, where we were filming. And as I said, there was very little water. and uh, But I, what I wanted to show was the water was rising, because I would cut to the stock footage of the water coming from the dam, and then it had the rise here. But we couldn't get the water to rise. So when you can't get the water to rise, what do you do? you have to lower the rock. And uh, that's what we did. We built three rocks. This is the tallest rock, rock number one. And uh, and here's the shot out of the film, a frame grab from the film where you can see Bill is on the rock and is, there's this much space between him and the water. Uh, and then we cut to stock footage of more water coming down, pouring, pouring, pouring. So the water should be getting deeper. And, uh, and now in this shot, you can see we're in the middle-sized rock. We've dropped the rock into the water a little deeper. And the guys are beginning to stir up the water here with a little pump off screen. Uh, I think I even went to a closer angle here. You had to say, hey, see, the water's getting higher, right? And um, and then we cut back to the stock. Oh, my God, the water is really coming now. And here we are uh, on the tiniest rock where, where Bill is literally right down at the water level. Uh, still fishing. And you can see us over here with the camera uh, and the the water is being uh, churned up here uh, by the uh, uh, special effects guys with just a couple of uh, uh, portable pumps to make it look like it's really getting more to like white water. Uh, and here it is. Here's the shot out of the picture that we got that gives you the feeling, oh my God, the water really is coming up, you know. And um what happens next is that Bill, heals, uh, Bill, Bill hears somebody calling for help, and he starts. Uh, he's, he's caught, Oh, his first is the shot of the fish and stuff to make sure you see the really water really came up. See, so now we had to get to the sequence where uh, Lori Prang, our leading lady, uh, has is is holding on to a rock and Bill's coming to help her. And here you really get a, a good sense of Tohunga Wash and what it really looks like. There is no big white water at Tohunga Wash except this one little piece of water right down here at the bottom where i'm standing in a a half a wetsuit and um uh so all of the water that we had that was churning was right here so we had to figure out how we were going to make all of that work and to cut it together uh here's me with john mcpherson my great cinematographer uh lining up for uh what we're trying to do now here we have lined up here's laurie hanging onto the side of the rock (laughs) in that one place where the water's churning by itself. Uh, Bix is reaching for her, the handheld camera operator is working here with the assistant camera pulling focus beside her. McPherson, Johnny McPherson behind her and me talking her through it, talking both of them through it. And here's the shot that we got from that setup. Uh, And it looks like she's holding on, you know, barely. Uh, And we did a closer angle, uh, just on a slightly longer lens from the same place to get that. Uh, and Will doesn't know it yet, but Lori is blind. Her character, Julie, is blind. Um, and she has stumbled into the water, and that's why she's here. Now, you have to get a reverse angle on this. So here we are, setting up to set up to get the rehearse angle of Bix now reaching down for her. We've moved the camera to the other side, so we're looking back. Notice the Incredible Hulk vests on some of the guys here, uh, big green vests. Um, And uh, uh, and the cameraman is down there with his eye in the camera and uh, and we're getting the shot uh, that looks like this in the movie of Bix reaching down for her. And again, we're using all the water we can at this point and low enough so that we don't see that there's no big water up here or a dam or anything like that carefully framed. Uh, and he's reaching, come on, come on, come here, hang. And then we cut the stock footage, of the water getting deeper. And then they fall in the water. The two of them fall in the water and get supposedly swept downstream. and um, and here they are. This is the stunt guys from the uh, from the parallax view in the water. and but uh, Laurie Prang dressed <clears throat> in khaki, the same thing that the uh, that the cop was wearing, so that their costumes match. And then we'd get close-ups of Bix and Laurie uh, going, being swept downstream. But we had—they had to go down this same little slide of some water about five <laughs> times so that we could get different shots. But they're all each time they're going through the same. But then we'd cut back to these big shots from uh, from the movie, and it really looked like, oh my God! And then you intercut Bix and i mean it's this huge production value uh that we just bought by the foot from paramount that we could cut in with our movie making and uh and you know and make it work and finally they get to some still water and he drags are out on the side and they're both and this is me helping helping laurie out uh after we had uh, after we'd finished uh, the sequence um
1: well and kenny, and- kenny what, one thing i was going to actually ask about there because First of all, for, for those who haven't watched this episode yet, first of all, you should do it. Uh, it is on iTunes as well. That's where I found it. Uh, and this scene goes on for a while. So, like, the way you're describing it, like, it, it, it you don't even realize, like, if you haven't seen the scene, it, it's actually a, a pretty long set piece. And yeah, um, And I think that's what's really impressive is not just, like, your, I mean, brilliant use of camera angle and stock footage in a way that, well, right. I mean, I... I never thought of it when I was watching. I was like, yeah, that looks
2: just like Warren Beatty's st- stunt double from Parallax View. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just to interject, it, it is one of those things that when, you know, you're – old uh, curmudgeony, you know, 40 plus years in the future, a lot of times, you know, content, especially for television, you can usually look at it and you can see the seams as they say. And uh, I had uh, no hint that uh, any of Love. these tricks you're talking about, you know, the those, those, are, you know, you see it in, in big screen movies sometimes where you're just like, oh, they cut a lot of corners. And you talking about all this, I just watched this yesterday. I'm like, yeah, I didn't have a feel that any of this, no, like, I just oh. wanna get in one comment from the chat though. Kame Egan points out, and Lori's hair stays perfectly dry but I think that that's important. That's her yeah. that's her superpower oh, actually, No she she was, so she was she was she was
0: really drenched and yeah. they they of course had wetsuits on underneath yeah. uh,
1: uh, because it was the water was cold. That, uh, that's what I was going to ask actually Kenny because I I felt like one thing that was so s- smart about this too their performances. Like as I'm watching it I'm like wow like I, I was going to say Kenny you put them through real hell it looks like but now <laughs> it sounds like Well, maybe it was just it was so cold that that's what they were using. But I completely believe that these characters went through that.
0: Yeah, well, they, they, that's a testament to them, and uh, and they really, you know, they were both. They're both such wonderful, wonderful actors. Uh, Laurie had played uh, actually a, a handicapped girl in our very first two-hour movie after the pilot, uh, Death in the Family. Uh, she was a paraplegic in that movie, and uh, but she's had such a wonderful, warm quality. When we were doing Prometheus, I said to Bix, I think we ought to bring Laurie back. It's been four years, and, and he said that's perfect. And uh, that's how that's
2: how dumb I am, Kenny. I watched that episode uh like I talked to me you like not even yeah. three months ago and uh I I was like she looks familiar but I actually <laughs> chalked it up that uh, I thought that it was just that she you know physically resembles uh Faye grant from V so I thought, like oh <laughs> like to me she just kind of looks like Faye, but That's funny. uh uh yeah and um I, I just you know' I'm, I'm curious because her last name is Maxwell. And V has the character Robin Maxwell. Yeah, is, that, that's, that's is that like an inside thing for you? Or is that no, like that's, a friend? That's, that
0: was my wife's family, Robert Maxwell wow. and Katie Maxwell. And uh, uh, and Katie's also our daughter's name. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the Maxwells have turned up several times in the, <laughs> uh, in the whole thing. But uh, it, it does... Uh, you know, i i love to drop names of uh, people and friends and family and crew into into a lot of the shows one of the bionic woman episodes i wrote wrote had every character was somebody on the crew uh it was it was fun but anyway in t- in, in terms of the story uh, obviously this is what my guy does he falls into somebody's life uh dr banner and he helps them as indeed he helped her not drown uh, and he's going to help her more because when we first meet her she's she's very bitter she's a concert pianist who has been uh, uh sidelined by her blindness and um uh and her 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 brother uh sees to her she's li- been living in this isolated cabin and he stretched a rope down to the creek so she could get back and forth and have a little outside time without having to have somebody with her all the time but on this particular day she tried to go away from the rope and fell in the creek and and it just drove home to her how much what anguish she has at not being at Carnegie Hall anymore uh and uh, in spite of her uh, extraordinary skill as a pianist and, uh, and she has no self-confidence anymore. Uh, she doesn't want to get out of the house anymore. And what Bill does and accomplishes as Dr. Banner, only Dr. Banner can, is to help her get back into her life, and, which is the emotional core of, uh, of the story between uh, Bill, and Bix, and, and Laurie. Uh, and that's obviously the, what makes the Hulk successful, is that emotional core. And, uh, and that's what he does in the course of this particular story. Meanwhile, back at North American Air Defense Command, uh, they're, they're getting more and more curious about this uh, thing. Now, this is a set, obviously, that we built uh, at the studio at Universal. Um, uh, and uh, and they, they've got a, some visuals now on the, uh, the object that is coming in. And it's sort of cylindrical. And it seems to be coming at a very shallow angle which is odd and it seems like maybe it's being piloted. And, and also there's, they're getting a lot of gamma radiation from it. Now, we know when we hear the word gamma in a story that has Dr. David Banner in it, uh, you gotta be careful about where you know, it's gonna go and, and what ha- what's gonna happen. Uh, and indeed, we begin to get the sense that there's a big military operation going on. I love looking down on helicopters, which of course means you have to have two helicopters, uh, which I had a lot uh, for, for this show. Uh, and uh, all of this was shot at Falls Lake, up on the what was then the back lot at Universal, uh, to give us a sense of this big military uh, operation going on, two choppers and such coming in. And then from inside the command post here, we see the choppers landing in the background uh all is uh, of course time consuming and incidentally the whole two-hour piece was shot in uh only about 14 15 days uh so this is you know a tremendous uh, amount of uh, production value and such but that's again what i wanted to draw the audience in right away from the at the beginning uh, as you were uh, mentioning uh, that uh uh, you, you just get. Wait a minute! This is a big deal, uh, and and I wanted to grab an audience and and really have them uh, drawn in and by the mystery of what's going on and everything too, and now Jack McGee has been chasing after the the uh, the creature and has come to a nearby town where. Um, where the Hulk had been spotted. And he, uh, you know, here's about what's going on up here. And he's coming up to check on what's going on. Jack, the investigative reporter who loves to get into people's faces and indeed literally getting into their faces here. Um, And he senses that there's something, something, a bigger story here than maybe meets the eye and is not quite sure what's, but then they say, you know, you're step away from here and move away. And uh, and Jack also notices somebody wearing this uniform, which has Prometheus in it and uh, the flame, which of course Prometheus was the God who stole fire from the heavens and brought it to us. Uh, And so there's a little allegorical thing that begins to go on uh, in the audience's mind, I hope, about what does that symbol mean? And we'll find out more later. Uh, And while Jack is supposedly leaving the area, he manages to go into a truck uh, where he sees some guys coming out with uniforms. He goes inside, good old Jackie grabs a uniform for himself because, hmm, you never know, might come in handy. Um, and then we go back to North American Air Defense. It's getting closer, uh, and this is a countdown. It's uh, showing us getting closer. Meanwhile, Bill, our, our, our Dr. Banner, has taken Laurie out, uh, Katie, out to to help her get used to getting around without a rope and what he's showing her here is how you can you can tell direction even though you're blind and he points out to her where the sun is and she can feel it and by feeling where the sun is and knowing the time of day she can say okay then i'm looking to the southeast and right and so bill is 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 helping her to to grow out of uh, her her isolation. And she says, yeah, And then, well, during this scene, a cloud comes over and, and then she says, wait a minute, but then there's no sun. And he said, ah, well, when there's no sun, uh, then you want to f- find a tree and feel around until you find the moss on the tree, because the moss will always be on the north side of the tree, because that's the part that gets the least sunlight. And so Dr. Banner is doing what he always does by coming into someone's life, discovering the problems that they have, and trying to help them uh, and she is is incredibly, you know, appreciative of this. and and uh, already you can see on her face that he's opening up a world to her. And that's what Bill did so well and what we tried to write into, you know, all of the episodes. Uh, meanwhile, coming flying in, this is a, a, a visual effect that we actually made. This was before CGI and all of that, um, and of uh, this something flying in really fast past camera and heading down toward the earth uh and it they're out walking and it crashes it explodes and uh something nearby and the birds are flying out and little bushes are falling over and stuff so there's a moment where laurie and vix are knocked off their feet and she's scared and worried again and and vix says okay it's all right I, i'll go out and see what's going on there and uh and he takes her and heads her back toward her house and then he goes to where this meteor has landed now obviously a meteor hit normally is going to make a crater but we couldn't afford that <laughs> and uh, um, so i had to say okay it's coming in at enough of a slanted angle that it actually came scuttering down the side this hillside here and this was out at indian dunes uh, a a nearby local area where we did a lot of uh, wilderness kind of shooting and so Bix is up at the top. This was shot on a twenty-to-one lens, so that I could zoom in. I could start on a close-up of Bix, and uh, and then zoom out, and all the way out to reveal the big rock at the bottom, which is sparkling and twinkling. And Joe's music begins to come into play here, and adding a sense of uh, mystery and uh, uh, and otherworldliness as Bix gets a little closer and closer to it. To uh, um, and he begins to sense something wrong. And uh, pulling these frame grabs was interesting to watch him—him him just getting the feelish, the first feeling of it here. And then, as he gets closer, you can see it on his face. I mean, he says, "Wait, wait, wait! Something's wrong. Something's weird." And uh, he ends up touching it and, and, uh, and then stumbling backwards. And as he stumbles backwards, his hand goes down onto a, 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 a beehive that has fallen nearby. And oops, this is not a good sign because we know where this is going. Uh, the bees are swarming. Uh, we, we stuck uh, uh, bee-like things on Bix's face, and we got uh, some shots of uh, swarming bees that we superimposed. Over this, as he's flailing and flailing, but oh my God, <laughs> here we are, and we know what's coming, and and he so he hulks out, uh, and then Louis is tormented by it. He grabs the uh, the beehive and hurls it away, uh, flying it off into the distance, and uh, uh, and then he comes stumbling back toward where he had come from, the cabin where Laurie is living. She. Doesn't know what's going on. Somebody's pounding at the door, and then they bl- blast the door in, which crashes down, and uh, uh, and she is terrified, and and but senses that it's him, but not quite. And um, as she reaches out, she touches and feels, it's not his face anymore. And then we see the transition uh, of of from going from louis back toward bill but then something goes wonky uh and this was another thing that i that i was really enjoyed doing was creating a uh a a transition that didn't make it all the way and suddenly he was not the hulk but neither was he dr banner he was stuck in between and,
2: uh, and just and- to jump in about that, by the way, that I, I was uh, noticing that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Bill's face looks reminiscent of Lou Ferrigno's face, you know, yeah. so it's like, right. it's this great in between. It's not just, oh, we gave him big eyebrows. It's like, it really does look like it's in the middle. And right. uh, I thought that was, uh, it was really impressive how how, uh, how well that worked. Yeah. You know? Well, it, it's,
0: you know, and it's the, the weird thing is too, I mean, again, this was all before CGI, before you could have tentacles coming out of pirate spaces and taking the nose off of Voldemort and all.
2: Sorry, what were you going to jump in with, Eric?
1: Well, I was going to say also, uh, you know, two things. One, the acting he did here was great too, because he's, you see, it, it's kind of cool. He's taken a cue from Lou Ferrigno. Like yeah. the way he approached it, I thought was really like that helped sell it. Like you're saying, Kenny, in the absence of having CG, I mean, right. I think the the prosthetic it looked like he had on his forehead was great, but but right. really also his performance shifts. It's something he, you know, yeah, we see him sort of Hulk out a little bit, but this in between character was really a fascinating performance by bill bixby
0: well yeah that's that's uh, i mean bix is an an extraordinary actor and um uh and and we talked about okay what do we think and i said i think simple childlike uh at at the same time there's enough banner inside him to have a some sense of it but not enough and it's like he's in a bad dream you know and that's what we we uh we were Leaning toward, it and what Bix played so extraordinarily. And I mean, we had to do this the same way they did the Wolfman, you know, back in the 40s, where you put a little makeup on, and then you do a little more, and then you film a little more, and then you put a little more makeup on. I mean, it's it's ridiculously time-consuming, and uh, uh, and particularly nowadays when you can you know do it so quickly with uh, with magical CGI. And uh, and he asks for a mirror, and of course <laughs> she's a blind woman; she doesn't have a mirror uh and um uh and so he picks up a teapot uh and he he looks at his reflection in the in the bottom of the teapot uh a very shiny teapot which uh which he then really makes him crazy and he crushes the teapot crunch and uh and we get this expression of 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 horror and tears coming from him uh it's an extraordinary performance because he's lost and and has no reference points and know where to go and, and and how to deal with it so uh um he was he was really brilliant and uh jack in the meantime has put on one of those uniforms and is uh borrows like, i'm gonna borrow this cheaper right now <laughs> so you know so that he can go up and uh, be snooping and be our eyes watching what's happening on the outside and also uh inveigling his way into this operation And here we are, uh, uh, Johnny McPherson sitting over here in the camera, and I'm on the top of the crane as we were on the top of that hill uh, that you saw, where we had created the uh, uh, the slide down to where the where the meteor was, and um, uh, and this is looking down into that area, uh, and. Prometheus's first advanced teams have gotten here. And in the course of the story, um, um, Laurie had uh, had uh, somebody came pounding at her door. Prometheus did and said, you're going to have to leave with us now. Uh, they'd taken her away. She managed to get a, and she left Bill in a closet and saying, stay here till I come back. Um, and, uh, and she manages to, to get away when the truck stops at one point. And by virtue of what Bill had taught her about how to find direction when she's out in the wilderness, she manages to get back to where he is to get him out of the, the, uh, uh, the closet. Uh, literally out of the closet, and um, uh, and try to get him away from these people, whom she senses are, uh, you know, not in his best interest. And they end up, oops, at the wrong place, back where it started, uh, at the uh, at the site of the uh, the crash and um uh and we've got uh two jet rangers going around and around uh, over this thing and then the uh the the big prometheus helicopter which was this monster sikorsky comes rolling in over the top and um uh and uh bix is looking and doesn't get what's going on, it's just making him angry. All of this stuff coming in, it's making him angry. Or Also, he has the proximity of the r- r- gamma coming out of the rock. Uh, Prometheus has got something dangling ben- below it, which we're going to discover is a container to pick him up. And bear in mind the difficulty and the danger of working with two helicopters above the ground, another helicopter dangling something on top of them, and uh, so in addition to those three helicopter pilots, I had a fourth helicopter pilot who was on the ground, and he was the only one that talked to the helicopters. Uh, if I had to tell, have them tell them something, I would tell him something, and then he communicated it to them because he had to constantly be watching all the tail rotors and who, who was where. And so we didn't get into any difficulties, and everybody knew if something goes wrong, which way do they go, which way do we go. So it's a, it's a huge safety issue. Uh, meanwhile, well,
2: just uh, uh, speaking of safety, I did want to ask you a quick question. Uh, I know that uh, regulations with uh, filming with helicopters would change a few years later because of the tragedy on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, so what you did, it, it seems to me that was the one takeaway, you know, from like, you know, enjoying it uh, from the narrative. But then from the behind the scenes standpoint, I feel like, you know, a few years later, you wouldn't have been able to do all of what you're describing right now. Right.
0: Well, it's interesting because when uh, you remember that the opening sequence of V uh, is a firefight with two helicopters flying over and explosives and pyrotechnics and uh, stuff going on. And, um, uh, And we were filming that on the location, the exact same location, where only two weeks earlier, the two children and Vic Morrow had been killed when a helicopter crashed on top of them at that spot. And um, so Warner's was very nervous about it. Um, And uh, I remember the guy from Warner's insurance came down to me and said, uh, uh, can you give me an idea of what you're planning to do here? And I said, can I give you an idea? Yeah. Come into my trailer. And I spread out for him a table size uh, uh, ground plan of the whole um area where we were working where all of the helicopter paths were mattered and uh, noted and, and 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 drawn out uh, each direction for each take each shot where all of the explosives were which explosives were going to go with which shot and you know and it was really really carefully carefully core coordinated and uh, uh, and then choreographed uh, so that everybody knew what was happening every moment and he said do you always do this when you're working with helicopters and I said well I do you know when when I'm working with explosives and children and animals and yes of course I do why and he said well on the twilight zone set they were just flying by the seat of their pants he said it, it was, yeah it was it was a nightmare this never should have happened and a lot of people should have gone to jail uh because of the death of, uh, of those three people so It was, uh, now we're doing this scene that we're talking about here in Prometheus. This is like five years, four years before I did V. But still my thinking there was the same thing. Safety is no accident. And that's what we would always... Uh, hold as our mantra on the set, so we always knew exactly where we had to go and what the safety issues were. And also, uh, there's an ambulance standing by and a fire truck, and uh, and and certainly we had our a wealth of helicopters if we needed a helicopter, anybody to a uh, to a hospital. So all of that was uh, is is has to be factored in when you're doing something like this. But. Uh, and particularly here i mean here you can see the the whole thing i i in. this is from the picture helicopter looking down across the prometheus helicopter with the jet ranger helicopter underneath it with bix and laurie down here at the bottom uh and one of the helicopters uh, uh, i think this is about the point where bix hulks out you just get so angry at at what's going on and all the noise and everything and and he, he turns into the creature and uh, uh, and Louis is uh, is is not happy by the situation. The helicopters are getting closer. More contingents of the Prometheus uh, people are encircling him. He's feeling more and more trapped. Uh, Jack is up on a hillside with his binoculars, watching his whole thing, going, "Holy cow! It's him! It's the guy I've been looking for for all these years!" And uh, and Big Lou picks up a stump and throws it at the helicopter. Uh, we made a helicopter strut uh, that we could put pyrotechnics on and just have the hit and the explosion. And then the helicopter spins out of control, supposedly, and ducks down behind trees where we set off this big fireball explosion to make it seem as though uh, the helicopter has crashed. Uh, But we do make it clear that the men got out. Uh, That was important to broadcast standards. So we didn't just kill them.
1: Although, Kenny, the uh, teaser, when I watched on iTunes, made it look you know, it took out the middle shot where you see it actually landing safely. Mm-hmm. So the teaser is brilliant because it's like, oh my god, did Hulk just kill some random guy? <laughs> exactly, that exactly. Well, that's
0: that's the, the the tease that you want, the classic right. cliffhanger tease. You know, I've uh, got
2: uh, I've got two questions about this, uh, Kenny. The yeah. first is, was this aired uh, over two weeks or did uh, they give you two hours? Uh, no, it was help. it was a two parter. It was aired
0: okay. over two weeks. And, which, is, which, is, which is a right. great way to start a series new season because you grab the audience and then you hook them in for the second week, you know?
2: Yeah, no. And you can really feel the, and, you know, Joe's music does a great job sort of those last few minutes, you know, as uh, the creature emerges and all that. And it's all like, OK, I know this is part one of two. And uh, I can imagine just watching it like, oh, how are they going to get out of this? Oh, to be continued. OK, um, let's talk about that red container. What is that? How big is it? Uh, I, I I'm fascinated by the red container. Uh, so it's
0: really know. big. It came up. It had to. It came in two pieces, two halves, two quarters that were taken, uh, brought up to this location in Indian Dunes on flatbed trucks. One of them fell off of the truck on the way up, and they had to pick it up and put it back together. Uh, and uh, and the helicopter is uh, is as, as I said, it's a big Sikorsky, and because uh, uh, I needed a heavy lift. Or uh, vehicle, um, and uh, and it was uh, I'm not sure it's probably made out of fiberglass. Uh, the 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 uh, the dome, uh, because it, it I needed something that I could you know I mean, it's sort of corny, but we had to find a way to trap. How do you trap an alien? if it's on the ground. Well, we, maybe we should lower something on top of it. So that was sort of the game plan here. And as the helicopter comes in over top. Lori and the camera right on the ground uh, looking up across them there and uh and then i needed to get to this shot where it could be lowered down on top of him but it was very wonky to try to do that it was very dangerous for lou and Lori to be there while this thing was being lowered over them by a helicopter with wind currents blowing it back and forth uh to get the shot and uh here's how we did it uh, here's the Lori and, and Lou are on the inside here. The whole crew is the rest of the crew is all around as it gets lowered down. And so we lowered it all the way in on top of them. And then we, then everybody, and this is me right here on the radio uh, talking to uh, the, the helicopter pilot who's talking to the other helicopter pilots and everybody else on the crew uh, to, to stage the scene. So they, everybody was here to ease it down so we could get it down onto the ground. And once we did get it onto the ground, everybody ran out of the shot and then the chopper just lifted it off and we got this shot of it lifting off and I reversed the film so that it looked like it was coming down on top of Lou and, and Laurie. Uh, but that was the only way we could do it safely for them. Uh, and that it gives you a sense of the size of it, too. I mean, it was, it was a big honker. Um, and then uh, there's, a, and, and McGee is watching this, too. All And then once it's lowered down, um, uh, you, we heard this sort of grounding, grinding sound like it was, you know, the idea was it was a steam shovel or something. It was scooping them up and takes a big divot out of the, the ground and uh, with Laurie and Lou supposedly on the inside of it. Uh, and begins to uh, lift off and, and head up uh, away. And one of the things that I said to Joe is, look, we're, we got three helicopters going, it's a lot of noise. Helicopters are terrible when you're trying to do music um, because the, the sound of helicopters, particularly three of them, particularly one of a gigantic Sikorsky really eats up the, uh, the soundtrack. And I said, Joe, let's synthesize the sound of a helicopter blade and make it part of the percussion in your musical score. So when you hear the score, the, the music score for what's happening here, uh, the, the, of the of the helicopter is in rhythm with the, exactly with the music that Joe's playing. So it's all it's all with the drums and everything so that it's all in rhythm. And that way we could actually use the helicopter sound uh, but not have the helicopter sound eat up the music, and uh, uh, it was the first time I think anybody had ever done that, and it certainly worked and uh, uh, and really helped us preserve the great music and not have it all just get lost in uh, in helicopter noise.
1: Yeah, Kenny, yeah. It's actually, specifically, th- thank you so much for talking about that, because I thought the music at the the I know, uh, Christian, you are talking about the music when um, the dome's there and he hulks out, but but that's this moment here. I was like, oh, my God, that music's amazing. And the percussion, um, I was just I watched this late at night listening to my headphones uh, because my boys were asleep, you know, and I mean, I was like I was like ready to jump into battle. Like it was such like, an exciting way to end it. And one thing I read about was uh, and Christian, I know you brought up the soundtrack before the idea that this episode's music was so next level it warranted the release of its own album. Um, but I, I think I read that there was like more uh, musicians on this uh, episode than usual, like, like upwards of like 40 or so. I,
0: I... Yeah. Yeah. We had, we had a pretty, pretty fair sized orchestra. I mean, generally you've got 35 pieces or so for a, for in those days for a studio, live studio orchestra. right,
1: right, right, right.
0: Uh, And plus we had a synthesizer working with us too. This was the early days of synthesizers. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, but, but I think we had maybe 40, 50 uh, uh, players for this, so that we had uh, the big percussion section because with all the, the militaristic kind of feel naturally since, since sort of tends you toward drums and drum beats and that sort of thing, it helps to sell, you know, to sell military. And um, uh, and, and that was that was part of it. Yes, yeah, so we did have a bit a larger orchestra. And, and the, the interesting thing too is on the on the we were on the dubbing stage dubbing it. And people k- kept walking in saying, what feature is this? <laughs> you know? And I said, oh, it's just an episode, a couple episodes of a t- TV show. What? <laughs> <You> know, because <laughs> there was so much huge production value. To, we're about to get to some more of that here. Um, the uh, Oh, I want to show you this, though, too. Uh, this, of course, is Lou Ferrigno, who plays the Incredible Hulk. This is um, uh, my, my dear, dear, departed pal, who was Bill's stunt double, Frank Orsati, and our stunt coordinator on the series. And we also needed a stunt double for Lou. And, you know, it was hard. But we finally finally found this guy, Manuel Perry, Manny, who's got very close to the same physique. He's not as big, but the same size. And he's black. But it doesn't matter when you're putting green makeup on him. You know, and, and manny was the uh the stunt double for lou through the whole series and uh uh a wonderful wonderful guy became a big time stunt coordinator second unit director since then and uh still with us and uh, you know a great guy but i always sort of loved that underneath the green makeup i had a black guy it was great <laughs> you know? diversity before there was a, a factor in hollywood you know um Okay, so this the the part two the next week starts where sort of we left off. Uh, the helicopter obviously has lowered it down onto some sort of flatbed thing here, um, and uh, we got a shot again. I've got two helicopters working, and one of them has got a, got a camera in it because you want to always. If you've got two helicopters, you always want to use one of them to get aerial shots, which uh, which we did, like this one here, uh, as it's being brought into where. Hmm. And we had discovered this tunnel. Uh, Up uh, near the Newhall area, north of Los Angeles, Uh, the doors are ours. It does not have these big vault doors on it. We created these big vault doors so that it would look like it was important, you know, really secure kind of place. Uh, actually, it was just a tunnel that went back about 300 yards and ended. We, did, we have no idea why the tunnel was there, but, uh, uh, but it was available for us to use. And so we made the doors to, uh, to make it you know, look even better. And here we see that we're beginning to move into it. And this, this, the dome had to be created, incidentally, in this size so that it would fit into this tunnel, um, so the uh, the the tunnel sort of uh, dictated the size of the dome that we could use, and you can see that the dome has got punches in it. Uh, this is supposedly where the Hulk has been trying to break out from the inside, and we had several moments and shots in the in the movie where you see them appear, where they're being slammed from the inside with big growls and noise, and you know, and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, here's a close angle as uh, it's. Uh, wheeling in toward the uh, toward the tunnel, 18 to 14 millimeter lens, really wide. So I've got the helicopters flying through and this is driving in and all of that. And then the problem came when I said to Chuck Davis, you know, what kind of a facility? Uh, and Chuck said to me, what kind of a facility do you, do you picture we are going to? And I said, well, it's got to be something that looks like it could, could contain something like this. It's got to be a, a big kind of setting And, um, and, and we, everybody was sort of saying, well, where are we going to find that? And then I I remembered, I said, you know what, Uh, a year earlier, I had shot a, a two hour bionic woman episode called Doomsday is Tomorrow, where Jamie, our leading lady, my bionic woman, had to fight her way down um, through a, a military kind of industrial complex to get to the lowest level, to the core, where this doomsday device had been uh, set timing and it the time was winding down. Um, and, uh, and she had to get down and stop it or it was going to literally destroy the world. Uh, it was a scientist who had uh, Einstein type who said, I, I, I want to people to realize, and he, he said... Once I've triggered the started the doomsday device turned turned it on armed it, uh, then if there is a nuclear explosion it will go off and it will there will be no nobody left alive on Earth. So the idea was to scare the world into not going to you know nuclear disaster. So. Um, I, I, we were looking for locations and uh for for the doomsday thing and uh and jamie here's lindsay my leading lady uh had was had gone through a whole bunch before we get to this point this is she's getting near the basement of it now so she thinks and uh and the the defense of the, the old scientist incidentally has died and uh the uh the control and the security for this place has been left in the hands of alex who is, a computer like Hal. Uh, And he has his own agenda, Alex does, and his agenda is to prevent her from getting there. And so that's what, this is what he looks like. And we see him all over the place, uh, keeping his eye on her. Uh, And it it was sort of interesting because in a way, and I talk about it in that in that episode, that they were kind of cousins. He was a machine with the mind of a human, and she was a human with the parts of a machine with her bionic legs and and arm. So they were kind of cousins. Anyway, she's going down and she comes out uh, this doorway here up on the right hand side there. And um, when we don't know where we are and neither does she. and, uh, And she comes in a little further uh and then realizes okay i gotta go down this way and and then we get to this shot which shows her here on this level and she begins to look she looks and this this shot pans down until we see this gigantic hole in the ground which looks very high tech and oh my god what's going on here and the doomsday device is supposedly located down below this level and she's got to uh get down there. And she realizes it. So she's taking a look and trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this? And um, and here she is rappelling down on the inside. She couldn't just jump because it was, we couldn't put an airbag down there. Uh, and uh, she's going down, down, and down from below, looking up. I mean, these are great stuff, right? This was... Uh, this was a uh, something I'd seen in the newspaper that was being constructed up by Castaic Lake. This is a power generating station that was under construction. And we went up there and they let us uh, in for a day or so so that we could get these shots uh, of her inside and making her way. Now she's down here real small. And, and, and Alex is saying, you can't go any further, Jamie. And she says, oh, yeah, watch this. And she's going to start down from here going down uh, to, you know, to the next place. So I, I remembered this place and I said, you know, they finished building that place. Now let's go up and take a look at that because this, what you have just seen was only one fifth the size of the place. And I said, so I took my Chuck Davis and my production team up there and I showed them this, which is the interior now of the castaic power station um and uh uh and we decided okay well this looks like a james bond set and, yeah. uh, uh, and all we because it, it has these are these are the holes where the, the the giant turbines go into uh that the water flows through to create the the, the electricity uh, and then once they have put the generator uh, in there, they put a cap on it. That's what this is. This is a huge, gigantic concrete cap, slab, um, that um, goes on top of this. And it's, um, um, you know, moved back and forth by these cranes overhead. Um, and we, uh, I said, this, this looks like we, it could work. Um, and Jack is, of course, along for the ride and seeing this uh, and giving us his perspective on the inside and inside. So, but you can see that it's a it's a really fantastic place to, to look, and it really looks like we spent a hundred million dollars to uh, uh, to build a, a James Bond set. It actually costs about five or six thousand dollars. That's all from the DWP. That the DeW- it was a power station, like, yeah.
1: like you, were able, you were able to go there when it's working.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because by then it was built and working, and all the turbines were in there, and while and when and it was it was working while we were there, uh, and, uh, and a bit noisy too. But uh, but I just brought in a hundred extras and a few spot, a couple of four spotlights actually, to uh, to uh, just enhance it a little bit. And interestingly, uh, there was no way to drive this truck into this place uh, because the ground level is up here. Uh, at this level. But I, I asked the guys, hey, could we use your cranes to lower our truck down into here? And they said, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know? So the, uh, the cranes actually helped us get the truck and all the stuff into place. Uh, and then we had to cheat the entrance. Uh, so is that to look, make it look as though they had driven in. Um, and it was, it was a pretty cool uh, set to, to see and to have to use, uh, and it really gave us tremendous production values. Here you see this lid thing sliding even a little closer. And then to make it even a little sexier, at one point, we turned the lights out. And now it begins to look really, and the music starts here at this point, the music cue. Uh, Before that, it's just voices echoing and PA systems calling and all of that sort of stuff. But when the lights go out, it really begins to look like close encounters and Joe's music uh, was terrific to enhance all of that. Uh, And here is an angle looking from the other direction, the cameras here, you can see the guys riding this uh, this thing in as the uh, dome has been lifted up off the truck and is headed down in this direction, supposedly to be put in this deep, deep hole over here. Uh, Here's a hangout looking down in it. The deep, deep hole actually is only about six feet deep. Actually, these lights here are sitting at the bottom of the hole, but to make it look deeper, we put black duvetine in here and we put smaller lights on the inside, you know, to make it look sort of forced perspective, like there was a room for the thing to go in and to go down into it. And, uh, And we got great little up like this is this is a shot uh th- this is a shadow of some of those guys walking on a uh that uh the dome thing back here uh as they as it all it was all rolling in together and it was it was pretty impressive uh and, it, and it, again it wasn't very expensive i just had a bunch of extras and uh, uh and jack mcgee uh and we got the shot we needed and uh here's jack watching it now jack and the story uh, discovers that uh, what's going on here—that uh, uh, they are holding this creature, thinking that it is an alien—and he is—he uh, is discovered to be a reporter, as he is, and of course that freaks everybody out, particularly the military people. And uh, uh, and Jack tries to convince them, no, you don't know what you're dealing with, and has, it, and that's a part of the the uh, the, the McGill storyline as we go on through it. But eventually, what happens uh, at the end is uh, that um, uh, the creature it manages to get loose down inside and causes some damage to start. And uh, uh, and he manages to scoop Laurie up and, and get her and take her out. And when I was in the editing room, um, we... Uh, I was looking at it, and uh, George Ohanian, my my editor, uh, I said, "Well, George, it doesn't. It's not a big enough ending. It needs a bigger ending." And he said, "But this is all the film you shot, Kenny." I said, "Well, I know. it's what I had. I shot what I had to shoot." But, but uh, he said, "What do you have in mind?" I said, well, I'd like maybe when he does this thing here where the sparks are going off, it triggers a fire and gets get some a small fire gets started or something, and maybe the fire spreads and maybe the equipment starts to burn and explode, and maybe eventually like the whole inside of the place is blowing up, and of course George is looking at me like I've gone crazy, you know? Okay. But you didn't shoot any of that. And I said, no, well, you know what? Let's call our film librarian at Universal, George Sperry, a very little sort of librarian type guy. And we'd say, George, here's what we need. Uh, Interiors exploding and uh, and maybe the side of a mountain blowing out, you know. And uh, a couple of days later, George Sperry called me and said, "Okay, Kenny, come and I'll show you what I've got. And he had found a, a film that Universal had released about maybe four years earlier called Operation Crossbow which was about a true story about the Allies uh, assault on the uh, V2 rocket uh, facility that was being built in Germany to launch the V2 rockets onto uh, London. And they went in and blew it up. Uh, and most of them died doing it. And, uh, and the, you know, the, the Operation Crossbow had been made. Universal owned the film. And they did a lot of really big, big stuff. And so we looked at all the film and started figuring out how we could put it together. And uh, so this was a little stuff that we did to add some uh, fire in a sense that there's oil leaks and fires spreading. And uh, we did, this is at shot at Castaic, uh, some of the big equipment there that is uh, is sparking up and uh, uh, beginning to have difficulties. These are just our sparks that we added to their you know machinery. And um, and here's a shot from Operation Crossbow that's intercut yeah. with this, which, holy cow, looks so much bigger with all this fire and stuff going in the background. And <clears throat> you can't linger on it for too long, because as you look at it right now, you begin to say, wait a minute, that doesn't quite look real. No, it doesn't. But uh, going past in a, in a sequence of cuts, it, it does actually work pretty well. Um, there's another thing that I discovered when I was up here the first time doing the show with Lindsay on the Bionic Woman. The tunnels, the, the pipes that they have up there to funnel the water down to the, uh, the um, turbines are massive. <clears throat> Here's Lindsay discovering that and discovering that she can get out of here. She has to escape at the end of the, uh, the Doomsday Show. And so we got shots of her running through these gigantic tunnels. Are, you know, they're almost 12, 10, at least 10, 12 feet tall. And it's, it's, it's just a great look. Again, it was free and it was there. And, and I could do that and I could get a shot like this of her running uh, with a light behind her and uh, running out and escaping on the bionic woman. And I realized this is cool. Well, this is how I can get Lori and Lou out of uh, out of the place. Um, he's got her in his arms. Uh, he pokes a hole, bangs a hole, busts a hole into the concrete to go go. So now which gets him inside, he steps inside the tunnel. And then I've got Lori. And Lou, Lou carrying Laurie, running up the same tunnel that Lindsay ran up uh, all those years ago. Uh, and uh, um, and meanwhile, intercut with that. Do I get to that? Oh, yeah. And the, here's where they're trying to close it up. They're trying to close the valves oh, yeah. to, to, to keep him hemmed in. Um, and this is. This is how they control the water that is actually used to generate the electricity up there. The water comes down, down the hill from Lake Castaic and comes down into these tunnels. And this is a big ball valve. Same kind of valve that you have on a, on a, a, a kitchen sink uh, or in a bathroom where you just turn the ball and it closes off the piece. Only these are like 10 feet tall and made out of cast iron. You know, it's, it's, fan, it's a fantastic look. Um, and that was that stuff was intercut with this stuff, this stock footage, bang, boom, from um, uh, from the Operation Crossbow. Here, here's one shot. We only use it very briefly because you can really see the V two rockets all lined up here that they were building uh, at Penimunda, uh for uh, for World War II. Uh, and this is clearly, pretty clearly, a, a, a matte shot where this has been a matte painting and uh, it was fire added to it. But again, when it goes by in a couple of quick cuts, boom, boom, You don't register it. You don't really notice that here's the top of a V2 rocket, you know, right down here at the bottom. But for me, it gave me the kind of, okay, this is a really bang, boom, blowing up thing going on. uh, As Lou is trying to stop this uh, thing from coming down on top of him and Laurie, you can get a sense of how big the ball valve is here with Lou under it. And uh, him straining and straining, trying to hold her. Finally, he sets her down and he's just pushing it himself. And uh, we did a couple of cuts that uh, seemed to make this trigger something upstairs as he strains and strains and uh, and pushes it up high enough for a bigger explosion <laughs> to happen upstairs. Again, stock footage, uh, all with miniatures and matte paintings from Operation Crossbow, who had way more money than I did uh, to make But I could use all of their production value to give mine all that much more uh, scope. And, and explosives and stuff falling and debris. Some of these shots are also in in V uh, when uh, when they blow up the uh, uh, chemistry plant uh, near the end of uh, of the first my original four hour movie. Some of these shots you you'd find them there too because we said let's grab a couple of those that we used in Prometheus. Um, and ultimately, Laura, uh, Lou gets to carry Lori outside, uh, get Banner away from all the gamma stuff that's going on inside. So he's able to make the transition back. And uh, as she is with him and then slowly realizes that it's now back to Bill and and she's tearful. And it's really an emotional scene. It's so powerful for Bix, too. They were, they were both just absolutely crying when they did it. and uh and they could she could feel it was his face and it was so tactile and so human and so heartfelt um, that was you know it was a, a wonderful evening on the set uh when we in the back lot where we shot this and, and this i love this expression on vix's face here it was like he had he had somehow come through it all it was uh it was a really a really a really sweet moment and um And for lori too and what a performance and and so watching her throughout you have absolute you are absolutely convinced that she is blind i mean you've seen people play blind people then it doesn't really feel like it you know but with lori it was it was just extraordinary um and then there's the you know the final moment at the end of the movie where it's time for him to move on and for her to have gained thanks to him the uh the self-confidence She's, you know, I think in the scene she says something like, if, "If I can get through the tunnels at Prometheus and uh, and all that stuff in the forest, I think I can get from the plaza to Carnegie Hall." Okay, <laughs> and uh, uh, so have a have a sweet moment as they uh, are together, and then they get to the bus uh, where she says, tells her that tells him that she's writing a, a concerto for him in three parts, for each of his personas. And, uh, and it's really, really a touching moment um, that it, really a heartbreaking to have to see them be separated. Um, but he's content that he's done what he needed to do. And we have the moment of him ushering her onto the bus and, um, and the bus pulls away and our boy is left standing there and turns to walk away and there we are.
2: And, and, and of course we hear, uh, Joe's wonderful score. I, 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 I loved having, uh, having a story time, uh, for these episodes, obviously much more enjoyable, of course, having just watched them and, uh, people can, uh, as Eric mentioned, they can find uh, the Prometheus two part episode. You can find it, uh, on iTunes apparently. Yeah. And if you're a physical media guy like me, I still have my, uh, full series box set. Um, just a, a word that you used, I think, is really important, Kenny. Uh, it, it's the the tragedy of this show, and of course, of David Banner's life is you go through this really emotional thing. It brings people really close together, and he's like, "Okay, but now I I gotta go because that's what I do." Obviously, yeah. more than ever, he has yeah, to move.
0: finished here. I gotta move on. Banner. You know, it's a classic. It's a classic. I mean, how many westerns did we see like that yeah. when we were? Is, you know uh, the guy rides into town the guy fixes things up and, and then the guy rides out of town and uh, uh it, it's the classic hero that must keep going in banners case it's not because well i just rather go to another town it's yeah. no I have to go because i've got mcgee still after me uh my trauma my nightmare continues but uh uh but but fortunately uh Laurie is in a better place than she was when our hero met her to begin with um, and uh, to me, that's uh, uh, but there was always the heart and soul of what the show was all about. Um, and uh, Prometheus, uh, McGee also makes the discovery that Prometheus is not all that altruistic. Yeah, uh, yeah. that indeed they are looking to steal fire from the heavens. That there are military aspects of it. That the that the civilian scientists who are involved in uh, in the Prometheus uh, story uh were unaware of they're going what you know we thought this was all for the glory of science and uh, and and making contact with uh, an alien race that might be able to help us as opposed to taking their power and and using it against us right. in a militaristic way and uh, so there was a another that was another important subtext that was playing throughout the uh, the entire two-hour story right and, uh, and... Go, go ahead. Ar.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I think also, too, the one McGee's story, by the way, I just want to say, like, really interesting uh, turn in this two part episode where we see, you know, McGee is always dodging going after him. And and this one, you could see he's he's you're rounding him out as a character nicely in this one, too, where yeah. you know, he's conflicted on what to do and what what his responsibility is
0: yeah and uh, there's a lovely scene where he is really trying to banner you know it's me or he doesn't know it's banner but he says you know me you know who i am you know and uh uh and and yeah well that that was the beauty of jack too um because jack was a, a sensational actor uh, a wonderful acting coach uh, as well too and a, a renowned as a, as a drama teacher um and uh and and jack absolutely appreciated it and, and early on when we were first starting the series, you know, he even said to me at one point when and it was one of the episodes where he didn't have that much to do. And he said, you know, can we find more to do with the, can I, can you guys find more for, for to do with the character so that I'm not just coming in and saying, I'm looking for a large hulking and Groucher that was recorded. I said, yeah, no, I, that, that was always my intent, Jack. And over the course of the series, we tried to constantly be developing uh, aspects like that with him. And, uh, uh, and I love the 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 two. The, the, I think it was also a two-parter, wasn't it? Where he's with Banner, and Banner's all bandaged up, and he doesn't know, um, uh, and uh, uh, who he's with, um, and and we um, and and particularly in in this one, it was just an ideal way to show Jack as a reporter on his own track, on his own line, on his own storyline. Uh, trying to follow up on what was going on here, and discovering that it was a, a really big deal, and and that the scientists did not were not aware that they had been duped a bit, more than a bit, by the military aspect of it, and uh, uh, and re- revelatory of that. So it was. Uh, uh, I agree with you. Thanks. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, uh, I, I really loved giving Jack that much more to work with, and he was. Yeah, he was nice. He was great away, yeah.
1: and I think your Prometheus logo might have inspired Space Force's logo. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, no, I don't know if you got a paycheck from the U.S. government, but I mean, Kenny, you might have something to stand on here. Wow. Copyright, yeah,
0: <laughs> the Space Force. Well, oh my it, God, I it's I. Uh, well, on on my website, there are there are a couple of uh, posters. I think it came from a Canadian artist of uh, of this of, of in a V uniform, one of the visitor uniforms, with uh, Donald Trump as the you know as the Space yeah. Force commander. Uh, it's it's very and, funny to see on my website, which is just my power. website is just my name, Kenneth Johnson. You can see it there
2: exactly what i was going to mention that that's where they can get more kenneth johnson.us and and it's interesting that eric you brought up uh you brought up mcgee because that's what i was going to talk about i think that as a device for the series it's great to have this you know it's I, I, when we, we spoke last time, it's sort of like, you know, the fugitive, you know, Dr. Kimball's, you know, he's got to move on there. He's being chased. But I, I love that this episode, and well, these two episodes in particular, you really do get more than just a, you know, the guy asking questions, trying to get the story, you know? Right, and, right, and- right.
0: I mean, the, c- certainly, I mean, he was, the, Jack's character was of course, as you know, inspired by Inspector Gervais in Les Miserables. Who was determined to find Jean Valjean, you know, and <clears throat> but who uh, Victor Hugo made a very three-dimensional character, so you absolutely understood his drive and his determination and the law and how the law was so important to him. Humanity aside, the law was most important, and uh, uh, and Jack uh, certainly has that that drive and that desire to get the big story that he's been chasing for. Uh, three and a half years already at this point, and uh, uh, but at the same time, he's a human being, and and he's got his own feelings and thoughts, and and that's that's what we tried to mine as as much as we could, and because they, it just makes it enriches the whole story when all of your characters have got a really really good three dimensionality to them.
2: Well, Kenny, uh, we really appreciate you being uh, so generous with your time and the uh, show and tell. Uh, it was it was so much fun, and uh, you know, I'm gonna continue uh, working my way through the uh, the box set. And uh, <laughs> you know, you'll get a message for the for the next time. I'm like, how about these episodes? But uh, <laughs> I appreciate. I've I, I have one final question, which sure. uh, you know, when we spoke the last time, you talked about there was, I think it was death in the family was the episode where you got the note from Stan Lee that there was a bear (laughs) and it was, could it be a robot bear? So my question while I was watching this episode, the bees, did he? Did Stan say, "Hey, how about robot bees?" Or have <laughs> <you> really-
0: <laughs> no, we were we were well past that at that point. And by that point, <laughs> you know, Stan said, "Hey, Kenny, whatever you want to do, you do it, man, because you you yeah. get it." And uh, and uh, he was it was so kind of him to say uh, several times in, in to so many people that he really felt that our show was the uh, the spark plug that really started the ball rolling for the Marvel universe. Uh, And, uh, uh, and that was, you know, I I was amazed when he said it to me more than once. And it was, uh, uh, it was really um, uh, coming. It was high praise indeed coming from a man whose creativity and genius I, I so aspire to.
2: Oh, wait, yeah, idea. no, I mean, it was a big deal because the comics of that era, the Hulk issues, it says, Marvel's TV sensation. They were very yeah, proud. Yeah. And I'm sorry, uh, Eric, uh, your final thought there. What was I mean, it wasn't
1: even a final thought. It was just going back to the bees for one second. So I watched oh. this. I was watching this on the iPad. The bee effect is so impressive on an iPad. At first, I'm like, what's going on with my screen? Like, Because oh, it, it really looked like they were literally... Cl- crawling on the inside of my screen. Like it was such an impressive <laughs> effect. And it was also like one in the morning, one 30. I'm like, I'm a little tired, a little, the coffee's wearing off. I'm like, what, what, what's going on oh here? god, Are
0: there bugs on my screen? <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Not again. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, and I thought that moment too, the effect with the bees, a great sound design, by the way, in both episodes. Uh Thanks. Including the sound of him inside that pod, I thought was maybe one of the neatest tricks were, Obviously, you're not going to have poor Lou Ferrigno hang out inside that thing while it's going everywhere. But, no, you know, <laughs> it sounded like you did.
0: Well, that was that's the point. I mean, at the oh, the whole idea is cheating. And uh, one yeah. of the cla- in my seminar, my filmmaking seminar, I have my final, the fourth, uh, fourth episode, fourth, fourth session of the seminar is called Cheats. The Tricks of the Filmmaking Trade, and it's about the the cheating that you have to do when you're making film to make an audience think they're hearing or seeing something that they couldn't uh, or that they're not really hearing or no that's not what you love well, well the stock footage is a perfect example of that no we didn't really set off all those explosions and do that you know we found it in uh, in stock footage and uh, uh, and we you know used that many many times to make our make the production value bigger as a, as a producer director what I'm always looking for is to make the show not only as as emotionally bright as it can be but also give it the most production value and feeling of of uh, uh, of time and effort uh, that has gone into something, so I'm glad it works for you.
2: Oh yeah, no, 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 <laughs> I agree about the uh, the B effect. So, uh, just a quick uh, programming note for everybody watching live uh, on Geekscape: uh, Stay tuned. Uh, the Geekscape YouTube channel uh, coming up uh, at the top of the hour, which is four Eastern, one Pacific. Uh, I will be doing a special on a show that preempted. Kenny show in November of 1978, I will be speaking with Jeremy Kuhn who has made a documentary called a strange disturbance in the force, which is about the star Wars holiday special. Uh, it is fascinating. I am uh, I, I anybody who knows that, that, uh, that special uh, knows it well. <laughs> and, uh, the fact that, uh, Jeremy made a documentary is so excited. I'm so excited to talk to him about it. So you can find that, uh, over on Geekscape, uh, really just in mere minutes, uh, excited to have that conversation. And I hope people from the chat pop over, but, uh, Kenny, as I said, it was great to talk to you. I look forward to uh, coming up with excuses to talk to you in the new year. Uh, uh Kenneth Johnson.us, and uh, you can find me, Twitter, Instagram, at Christian DMZ. Please subscribe to Geekscape and I have my personal podcast, The Blackcast, Eric Connor. Where can people find you? Well, occasionally I'm hanging out
1: in the dark corners of the Black Blackcast black black and the uh, Geekscape Universe. Uh, and uh, you can find me at Count Eric Connor. And I wish all of you a most joyous and prosperous life day. Uh, in honor of that star wars Wars
2: holiday special yes uh well uh we we mentioned uh stan lee a moment ago and as the great stan lee would say excelsior
0: (laughs) bless you guys thanks you're listening to the Geekscape network